Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. Hello and welcome to the SciComm podcast. My name is Cassie Donovan. I'm a freshman and I have not decided on a major just yet. I'm in the studio today with fellow freshmen, Morgan Lancaster and Yelena Boscovic. How are both of you doing? I'm doing great. My name is Morgan and I hope to major in mathematics with a secondary teaching licensure. Hi there. My name is Yelena and my major is biology and I'm excited to bring my perspectives into our conversation today. So today we are going to be talking about schizophrenia and its portrayal in the context of the film A Beautiful Mind. To our listeners, what do you think of when I say schizophrenia? Keep this in mind as we go along in our discussion today. So, Morgan, we're here in part because of your interest in the movie A Beautiful Mind and how schizophrenia is portrayed in the movie. Can either of you give me a quick synopsis of the film for our listeners? Yeah, sure, I can. The 2001 movie, A Beautiful Mind, is set in 1947 and examines the life of Nobel Prize-winning mathematician John Nash during the time he received his diagnosis of schizophrenia. What is fascinating about this film is the glimpse it gives us into how schizophrenia was perceived and treated during the late 1940s. When Nash was eventually diagnosed, he was treated with antipsychotics, hospitalized, and treated with insulin shock therapy. Interesting. So, Morgan, can you explain what drew you to it originally? The first time I saw the movie was when I was at my aunt's house during Hurricane Florence. My parents turned it on, and I remember being enthralled by it. Do the lead character, John Nash, being a mathematician and a code breaker. I love mathematics and code breaking, so it was really exciting to see a movie where the main character loved them as much as me. Then the twist came near the end, <laughs> spoiler alert, where it was revealed that many key parts of John Nash's life, including him working to break codes for the Department of Defense, were hallucinations caused by him having undiagnosed schizophrenia. This started my interest in schizophrenia and is what made me bring it up as a possible topic of conversation for today. That is really interesting. And how about you, Elena? What first piqued your interest in schizophrenia? I've always personally been interested in mental illness and how society views mental illness and those that suffer from it. It is an interesting topic. I have always been fascinated by it as well. What originally got my interest in it was the science behind it all, and in particular, how the brains of those with schizophrenia are different from those who don't have it. To my understanding, you've done some research on the history of various treatments for schizophrenia. What did you think you were going to find during your research? Starting out, we hypothesized that as society gained more knowledge about schizophrenia, treatments would evolve and become more ethical. Like in A Beautiful Mind with John Nash, due to a lack of dialogue in society about mental illness, Nash's diagnosis was prolonged and he was unaware that his hallucinations were symptoms of schizophrenia. We also thought that treatments would turn from institutionalization, which basically means lifelong inpatient care, to treatments such as therapy and medicines, as scientists and physicians learned more about schizophrenia. And even as more universities had become more interested in pursuing mental illnesses, as the topic was becoming less taboo in the mainstream. So what exactly is schizophrenia? What are the symptoms? According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the major symptoms of schizophrenia are hypersensitivity, anger, anxiety, hallucinations, 
an asocial behavior, which is basically a lack of motivation for any social situation or interaction. Hypersensitivity is an inability to focus on one stimulus at a time. Imagine you're at a bus station. There's the sounds, the smells, and all of the moving parts in the stimuli. From the smell of the exhaust to the sound of the murmur of people talking, someone with schizophrenia may find themselves overwhelmed and unable to function in this situation. Even though schizophrenia is one diagnosis, its extent is on a case-by-case basis. After exploring an article by Albert C. Yang from National Yangming University, we learned that a lot of the symptoms associated with schizophrenia are associated with a part of the brain that is about as large as an apple and located near the base of the brain called the hypothalamus. It is typically responsible for regulating emotions and the release of dopamine. However, in schizophrenics, there is a neurochemical imbalance, causing there to be too much dopamine release in the hypothalamus. In fact, dopamine imbalance is the most common cause of schizophrenia and is the most frequent target of treatment, since most, but not all, schizophrenics have an excess release of dopamine. However, Yang's research introduced the idea that dopamine is possibly not the only neurotransmitter out of balance in those with schizophrenia. You mentioned dopamine imbalance. How did this theory come about and why exactly do doctors try to treat dopamine imbalance when you said that there could be other causes? That's a really good question. The idea that symptoms of schizophrenia are because of a dopamine imbalance was actually introduced in the 1960s as a result of antipsychotic drug trials, or more specifically, the effects of a drug called chlorpromazine. When doctors prescribed dopamine inhibitors for schizophrenia patients, they saw success in reducing symptoms in most cases. The treatment became ubiquitous, leading to more research into the hypothesis in the 1960s. But like I mentioned, this treatment doesn't benefit all patients. According to Yang, the misfiring of many neurotransmitters, such as glutamate, serotonin, acetylcholine, and gamma-aminobitric acid, could lead to schizophrenia symptoms. Still, medications used to adjust dopamine levels remain a widely used component of schizophrenia treatment. So, what types of treatments for dopamine imbalance are there? The first treatments based on the dopamine hypothesis were the first-generation antipsychotics, also known as FGAs, in 1952. FGAs, while helpful, came with various side effects, such as extrapyramidal symptoms. Extrapyramidal symptoms include things such as involuntary movements, tremors, and muscle contractions, as well as mental effects like emotional and social withdrawal, diminished social drive, and sluggish thought processes. While schizophrenia already had a stigma associated with it due to its particular symptoms, these FGA side effects added to the stigmatization of schizophrenics by lowering patients' social and occupational abilities, even though they were receiving treatment. So was there a new drug introduced after scientists and doctors saw the side effects of the FGAs? Yes. These were second-generation antipsychotics, similarly known as SGAs. These were introduced in 1996 and targeted another set of receptors in the brain. This led to fewer of the symptoms caused by FGAs, giving patients a chance to participate more fully in society. Going back to what you said earlier, are there other medications that are available that aren't based on the dopamine hypothesis? Other medications that impact the imbalance of other neurotransmitters that are not dopamine, such as those affecting glutamate, serotonin, acetylcholine, and gamma-aminobitric acid, which are not as commonly prescribed since most patients do not have these imbalances, and so these drugs are less likely to be prescribed. They are more likely to be prescribed, however, on a case-by-case basis when looking at an individual's brain chemistry through methods like advanced brain scans. Have you ever heard of a computerized tomography or magnetic resonance imaging scan? Yeah, I had a friend that recently got a concussion and had to get an MRI scan, but I didn't know that they could also be used in the context of diagnosing schizophrenia. 
The scans actually can't diagnose schizophrenia, but they rather look at an individual's brain structure and help doctors to understand the exact neurochemical makeup and imbalances that are causing the symptoms of schizophrenia. This type of technology, however, is still being developed since recent studies have shown that not all people with schizophrenia show the same abnormal brain structure. Interestingly, the fact that all current medications are meant to treat the excess release of dopamine has led to doctors finding a subcategory of schizophrenia patients that are resistant to the current treatments. In fact, there's only one SGA that works for those who are treatment resistant, which is called clozapine. So what is the difference between treatment-resistant patients and those who do respond to treatment? According to Gillespie, research is still ongoing to decide what the exact differences are between people with schizophrenia who are treatment-resistant and those who respond to treatment, which are often referred to as treatment-responsive. But one of the biggest findings is that treatment-resistant patients have normal dopamine levels when compared to healthy volunteers. This would in turn explain why they don't respond to dopamine-based drug therapy. So if there are people who are treatment-resistant and treatment-responsive with schizophrenia, is there anything that helps with both types of people? In fact, there is. According to Schwartz, the individual greatly benefits from having insight into their symptoms, which means it helps if patients realize that their symptoms aren't normal. Typically, most schizophrenia patients have poor insight and don't realize that their hallucinations aren't a part of reality. But if someone realizes that they have schizophrenia, they are more likely to take their medications and go to their therapy sessions, giving them a greater chance of keeping their symptoms under control. The ability to cope with symptoms can lessen day-to-day -day stress, making it easier to carry on, as well as fostering an ability to decipher what is true from what is a hallucination. So, like in A Beautiful Mind, right? Exactly. In the movie, once Nash understood the fact that he had schizophrenia, he was able to better manage it and eventually was able to continue on the path to becoming a very successful and important mathematician. Societal stigmatization of schizophrenia had led to his late diagnosis, so in turn, as we understood, the better or more extensive insight that Nash had into his mental illness, the sooner he would have gotten treatment. Despite all of this, and after his relapse, he went on to get a Nobel Prize while off his medications because he learned to accept his condition and distinguish reality from hallucinations. So during all of this, has your perception of schizophrenia changed at all? Yeah, for sure. It has really opened my eyes to how much more research needs to be conducted to accurately diagnose people with schizophrenia and also drive more individualized treatment options. Modern schizophrenic treatment tried to stray away from institutionalization in comparison to the 1940s. In Nash's time in the film A Beautiful Mind, where the lack of research and societal knowledge on schizophrenia had led to institutionalization being the easiest solution and typically one where the patient did not have a choice. An article by Winnie S. Chow in the London School of Medicine speaks to modern institutionalization of the mentally ill being more voluntary and the facilitation of treatments being more successful if the patient was admitted of their own accord. Interesting. So when was the shift of voluntary versus involuntary institutionalization of schizophrenics or the mentally ill? Once more research was initiated by universities and governments, then did talk of mental illness begin reaching the mainstream and eventually was reflected in how politicians prioritized the mentally ill in the passing of policy. Once knowledge of mental illness became less taboo in a sense, there was more direction being made by policies to try and address systemic issues instead of immediately relying on institutionalization. Makes sense that as mental illness was becoming more mainstream, that it would also be reflected in policy decisions. It's interesting how the focus from institutionalization shifted with more knowledge about mental illness. I agree. It was also quite interesting that those who are treatment-resistant have normal dopamine levels. And what about you, Morgan? What are your thoughts after this research? 
I mean, yes, it definitely has changed the way I perceive the media surrounding schizophrenia. The way we portray schizophrenia is so important as it will help everyone foster greater understanding and compassion. Before this, while I knew society's perception of mental illness had changed, I didn't understand how important a role the media played. That is very true. If everyone had some sort of education and there was no stigma associated with getting diagnosed with mental illness, then people may be more open to finding help. In the 1940s, there was more stigma, so the solution would have been immediate institutionalization due to the lack of research and insight into mental illness. In the past, this could lead to people not necessarily wanting to confront their mental illness due to the fear of being institutionalized. As the stigma has lessened, the first step of getting help has evolved more into giving an individual the opportunity to develop more insight into their diagnosis and eventually their treatment options. This also leads to more voluntary treatment instead of involuntary institutionalization, like in the early 20th century. This is relevant to all of us because mental illness permeates many aspects of our lives. I'm sure that we all know someone with mental illness, even if they are undiagnosed. As you said, stigmatization of mental illness has prevented us from fostering a space where we can all understand mental illness. Lessening the stigma will allow us all to be more educated and to seek better care options. One way this could happen is if we were all able to read and understand scientific literature. Being able to evaluate real data in science studies would give us a chance to develop a greater understanding of the causes of mental illness, and it would help lessen the stigma surrounding mental illness as a whole. This wouldn't be just limited to mental illness, though. Everyone as a whole would be much more informed and could make better decisions if we all developed our ability to read scientific articles. Yes, about that. So could I not just learn about this by reading an Instagram post? You most definitely can, but you just have to make sure that the post is reliable and fact-checked. How would I do that? Here's a few things you can check to see if your source is reliable. A reliable source is one that comes from a reputable organization, be it an NGO or a university. You can look for citations or where this information is sourced from. This is typically found at the bottom of an Instagram post. Also, if you decide that you want to dive directly into the journal article's reference, make sure that they are peer-reviewed. A quick Wikipedia search of the name of the journal should tell you if it's trustworthy or not. Okay, cool. I've certainly learned a lot about this from you, too. I'm sure our listeners will feel the same way. Thanks for having us on. Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time!